0: All right, everyone, um, you may have a seat, and we are going to get started soon. We should be able to see slides. Um, if you all would, turn with me to 1 Peter. And as you turn, I'm going to remind you of what we talked about last month. Now, I always have to acknowledge... Actually, you know what? First, let's go to John 4. I'm sorry, I told you in the wrong order. That's good. Uh Headed to John 4 first. Um, can you all hear me in the back if I talk like this? A little rough. little rough? All right, I'll grab microphone. All right, can you hear me now? Perfect, thank you. Are we good? Can you all hear me OK? Wonderful, all right. Uh, so if you would, turn with me to John 4. And um, I will begin here. As we do, I always need to acknowledge. Thank you, brother. We good? I always need to acknowledge that what we do on First Sunday is distinct from what we do just about any other day, day of the week, any other Sunday of the month. And the idea in First Sunday. Do I have enough cord to go over here? Oh, perfect. Thank you. Uh, the idea of First Sunday is we take a doctrine that we need to make sure our church is familiar with and I will teach on that doctrine, and in the process, we address several passages because what we wanna do is address the whole council of scripture on that topic to give us the best understanding of it possible. You all know that this is still exegetical teaching, but it is in a more systematic approach, as opposed to what we do normally on every other Sunday where we are going chapter by chapter through scripture. And I always like to acknowledge that because the fact is what we do on First Sunday moves at a different pace. So you will remember, last first Sunday, we talked about the idea of worship, and we cited this passage in John 4. So if you will read with me, Jesus said to her, starting in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must also worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now this is critical for our understanding of worship because two criteria are mentioned here. Now first, maybe even more important, is that the focus is also that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the one who it says will tell us all things. Like so what we need to know, Jesus will provide it for us. But he gives these two criteria for faithful worship. He says it must be done in spirit and in truth. Now he doesn't give us a huge explanation here as to what this means, but as we studied last week, or last month, we understood that when we talk about in spirit, it seems to clearly identify one who truly loves God, that you are not merely giving lip service, that you're not just circumcised outwardly, but there's a circumcision of your heart, that you genuinely love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we saw, this is not possible without being regenerated. You must be born again in order to love God in this way. And so we talked about, Worship in spirit and truth. Well, the first step is that you must be spiritually alive. And every person other than Christ is born dead in sin and must be born again, must be regenerated. And so we talked about you need to be regenerated so that your spirit is alive. And then you must worship him in all that your life is. You're supposed to delight in him. So that was spirit. Second, it talks about in truth. In other words, we don't get to decide what kind of God we worship or how we worship him. That he is God, he has clearly communicated to us who he is in his revelation and how he is to be worshiped. So I must worship in spirit, my heart has to be in it, my spirit needs to be alive, regenerated, loving him. And then I need to do it in accordance with what he has commanded and who he has revealed himself to be. I don't get to make up the God of my own making and worship him. I have to worship God as he is. Everybody with me? So this is worship. And this should be understood to be the framework that's under everything else we talk about in this series. Cool? Um, Awesome. Here we go. So with this in mind, the understanding is if I am spiritually alive and I am worshiping him in spirit and in truth, then I have this continual sense in which I am to some degree offering worship to God. And so I want to bring attention. I always like to sneak in a little bit of Latin and Greek when I can. Partially because I want you to know these terms when they're used in other settings, and partially because it's just cool. Um, so this phrase, the corum deo, means before the face of God, and it's the it's from the Latin Vulgate translation of Psalm fifty-six thirteen. Um, and in English, it says, "For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, so that I may walk before God and the light of life." Now. The idea here is in my walking before God, I am standing, I'm acting, I'm living my life in front of him knowing that he's paying attention to everything I'm doing. And so everything that I do can and should bring glory to God. Everybody with me? So when you hear, especially the reformers, refer to this Coram Deo, this is what they mean. Um, You don't have to know the Latin. What you do have to know is that you should constantly be living as if God is watching and is to be delighting in all that you do. So as we're today gonna focus on studying corporate worship, what we first wanna understand is that individually, I should be worshiping God in all the things that I'm doing. And so we look in scripture at these various ways to worship, and I won't go into great detail in all of these, but it talks about worshiping in our work. Uh, We see in Colossians three, that whatever we do, we're to, to do it as to the Lord. Uh, we see in 2 Corinthians 9-7 that I'm giving with a cheerful heart, giving glory to God. Uh, Psalm 9:11, as various other passages well, talk about singing in worship to the Lord. Uh, we see Psalm 100, as well as various places in the New Testament, referring to serving as an act of worship. Prayer, Philippians 4 and other places, is seen as an act of worship. Joshua 1-8 talks about study as an act of worship. Uh, Matthew 28, I would argue that evangelism is an act of worship. Uh, the ordinances of the, of the church, of baptism, the Lord's Supper, are acts of worship. As you can kind of understand that as we start listing these things, if I'm, if I'm, and then I didn't even put in here, that when I'm resting on the Sabbath, that's an act of worship. Can you get that? If working should be an act of worship and resting should be an act of worship, that pretty much is everything already. Now it's listing all these other specific things. The idea is I am to live before the face of God in constant worship of my Savior. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So cool, I'm glad you all are with me. So then as we understand this, then as I'm engaging in various types of worship, this mentality should be weaved into all of it. And so we say often, now this, I'm going to provide some categories here that are simply for our terminology. We could point to scripture that says, yes, yes, should be doing this. But just for the sake of simplicity of understanding, you will hear us often talk about Lord's Day gathering and that we worship together right here on Sunday, the Lord's Day, And that that is seen as corporate worship, and it is a uniquely important thing that we're to do. And so I should be living before the face of God, providing glory to God when we gather together. But we would also acknowledge that we see in Deuteronomy 6 that parents are supposed to equip their children. And there seems to be this idea that in the family, we also see it throughout church history, that the family had a place of worship that you as a father would lead the family in worship and equipping and that that was a second kind of community different than the corporate worship, but there's a second kind of nucleus of worship that's supposed to happen there. Of course, we've already acknowledged individual worship. And then I would say in its different place, we see what we're commanded to disciple one another. And I would say this is distinct from a corporate worship, but certainly if I'm obeying God's commands, there's a fact in which as I'm making disciples, I'm giving him glory. And so when we talk about worship in these different settings, we are primarily speaking of corporate worship. But the idea is I better be doing these things both individually and in my family, and I should be equipping others to do the same. Everybody with me? Cool. So now to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, we're going to essentially go through and address some principles of worship. And I, I almost, I probably for, I ask for forgiveness too much on this because it's not wrong, but I recognize that we're packing in a lot of information on First Sunday, and I appreciate you hanging with me. Um, but this first principle we're going to address is the idea of the priesthood and the stonehood of all believers. We'll talk about what that means in a second. But it comes here from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 4. And actually, I'm going to pray because that was... I'm still in my intro. And uh, I'm going to pray for you all because I'm not even halfway through my intro. Now, once the intro is done, the sermon goes really fast. Um, Lord, I am asking that you would be with us today, anoint the words that I speak, and illuminate the word of God to us that we would have understanding. And God, as we try to get a a broad picture of what you have commanded for your church in corporate worship, God, we recognize that this is very important. And so we ask that you would illuminate the word, that you would anoint me, and then that also your Holy Spirit would work in us to have listening ears. Um, that then we would obey you uh, because what you are commanding us to do is actually a joyful thing. It is a beautiful and wonderful thing that we get to be benefiting from. So receive glory in this time. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter is writing to the church that's spread out. And I will acknowledge right now that there are those in one camp that say, oh no, he's only writing to Jewish believers. I do not believe that the evidence is that he is only writing to the Jews. Uh, his language seems to indicate that he is writing to the church scattered abroad, and he uses exile language to refer to the faithful believers. And so here, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, As you come to him, that is to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I'm going to point out a few key things here. He's referring to the the fact that Jesus Christ himself is a living stone. And that living stone has been rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. And he says, similarly, you are also, you faithful believers, are also living stones. Um, have we heard this language maybe a couple of other times in scripture, this idea of living stones? It's kind of an odd language, isn't it? Like We don't normally think of stones as living, and so this language is intriguing. But he says, Jesus was this living stone. You are living stones. And it says, you are to be built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then you're, you're going to, as priests in this temple, you are to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ which indicates that the only way that these sacrifices are acceptable to God is through Christ. And his atoning work is what makes them valuable. Otherwise, they're not at all. But these two languages or two terminologies that he's using here are a priesthood and living stones. Well, we're going to read on just a little bit. I'm going to skip down to verse 9 where he uses similar language again. He says, "For you are a cho- But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Understand the implication here. This is language that we saw in Exodus for the people of God. And he's using that language now for the church to say, you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. You are the people of God, and you have been chosen to represent God to the nations, much like... Israel was to be, and now as you're doing this, you are offering up these spiritual sacrifices and proclaiming, what does it say, Uh, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. I am supposed to give glory in this sense. So key principle that we're going to begin with as we understand worship is what I would call the priesthood and templehood of all believers. I made up the templehood thing because I don't know a good word, living stoneness of all believers. Uh, But there's there's two key things that come about in this. One is, temple stones have to be together. The implication is, if I am a stone in the temple, I am a part of the spiritual household that is being built up. And so, I should be together with the saints. And this is why we, we place a high value on coming together on the Lord's Day. Because... You know, you're a stone, it's it's not like, you're a stone and a priest, it's, it's not like you're a guy who just gets to sit on a pew or a lady who just gets kinda hot in the back and check off that you attended. The idea is you actually have a priestly role when you come together with the body. Not just that, but you're part of the temple itself. And in the same way that it would be a very odd thing to step into a physical temple and have stones missing here and there, the implication is that like you, you really should come together as a body. And more than that, once you're here, you are the priest serving under our great high priest to accomplish this servanthood task of ministering to the other saints. Ready? is this making sense to everybody? He's not pulling punches. He's saying very clearly that like you're living stones being built up into this temple, and you are the priests that come together to do this spiritual sacrifice so hopefully the the next thing that we should do then is say like well, what what are these sacrifices anybody know what the Old Testament priests would do in sacrifice anybody have any idea what that was what in, what that involved what's that there's burnt offerings there's different other things yeah yeah you sacrifice then was very much a pointing forward to Christ We recognized from earlier in Hebrews um, that Man, you know, those, the blood of goats and, and lambs was not going to save anybody. It was simply an act of faith pointing forward to Christ, whose atoning work was perfect. So similarly, our sacrifices should point to Christ similar to the way those did, although we're not, we're not sacrificing lambs and goats, right, because the perfect sacrifices come. Here's what we can see in Scripture about the reference to our sacrifices. First, we go to Romans 12:1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Interesting, because the language here, then, is that I am giving the whole of myself as an act of worship, that I am serving God with my body, And I would say, we're like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, what what does that look like? I want to think of all the things in the New Testament we're commanded to do to edify the other believers. We think of the gifts of the Spirit being in operation. We think of hospitality and servanthood. We think of mercy showing. We think of teaching and all of these other things that seem to be built into what we do when we come together. And so I would say that when you are here together, and just like we did a little while ago, when someone is confessing sin to you, and you say, receive God's grace. He's faithful and just to forgive you. You are serving in a priestly role. And even such a meager thing as saying those words with your lips is part of offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Similarly, when, uh, as my wife did this morning, gets up a little bit early and is making monkey bread to bring to the saints together to share in food, or when some of you are making the delicious, what is it, uh, biscuits and gravy, that... In a very similar sense, you are serving with your body. You are waking up, and it might seem meager, it might seem simple, but those tiny things, some of them bigger things than others, um, when you gather early, when the courses come early to set up the room and open up the building, um, or also when a brother or sister is weeping in grief, and you stand with them in comfort, and you offer mercy showing, uh, when you offer hospitality, Uh, When a faithful brother offers a loving rebuke, you are offering, you are functioning in this role as a biblical New Testament priest, and you are appointing them to the atoning work of Christ in the proclamation of the gospel. And each one of these things is a powerful and useful thing that I would argue is at least in part, part of this offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I would say that that living sacrifice goes to much greater depths that if the whole of my being belongs to God, that I'm willing to lay myself down for him. I am willing to serve in every way. I sacrifice, I, I discipline my body. And I would say it goes much further than these things, but in the context of the body of Christ, I'm serving others and that's part of why I'm here. Second, so notice that, that offering our, our sacrifice of ourselves is not just to one another, but obviously ultimately to God. But then we also see in Hebrews 13, It says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So notice, there's a certain sense in which we're sacrificing by loving one another and ministering to one another. There's another sense in which as we offer up praises that these are sacrifices of praise. And so if I'm comparing scripture with scripture and I'm acknowledging that we're to be priests offering up spiritual sacrifices, and if we're commanded in these other places in scripture to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice and praise as a sacrifice, Best I can guess is those sure seem to be the things we're to be doing. I don't think we could go into much greater detail, but that first principle then is the priesthood and templehood of believers. And it requires that we gather together. So if I would look very briefly here at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, he says, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the way, what kind of language is that? Where have we seen holy places in scripture? Holy, holy. Yeah. This is again language of priesthood. It says therefore brothers, since we have we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened through us the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, this is all atonement language and priestly cleanliness language. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Um, The idea is since we have this great high priest that has made us clean and made us holy, we can enter in to the holy places where the Holy Spirit resides in the temple of God's people, and we can do the work that he has commanded us to do. And so gathering together is critical. Stirring one another toward love and good works is critical. And then holding to this confession of our hope is a critical aspect of this gathering together. What is the confession of our hope, brothers and sisters? the gospel. Yeah, right on. So there was this idea in which I better come together to proclaim the good news, to offer spiritual sacrifices, to be together with the saints so that we would hold fast to the truth and spur one another onto love and good works. So now that my intro is done, uh, let us talk about what is to be done in corporate worship. we We already addressed the reality that Corporate worship is commanded. We see in Colossians 3:16 it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in wisdom, in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Similarly, even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 31, 12 through 13 says, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner in your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of his law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn. For the Lord your God, as loving, as, as long for the I fear the Lord your God, as long as you live, in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Notice that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament there was this command to gather together, and we see it fulfilled in the Book of Acts. Uh, Very briefly, I will note, when the church comes together and is first formed, in Acts chapter 2, it refers to them coming together. Verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Notice we see this theme throughout all of Scripture, where the saints in the New Testament and the people of God of Israel in the Old Testament come together to hear teaching and to pray, and in many cases, to break bread together it would seem that there is a consistency in these practices as the corporate church gathers together. Is everybody with me on this? Cool, most of you are with me? About 20% we will take it. More than 20%? All right, good. Um, so this brings us to this issue of what is often called the means of grace. You all heard this terminology before? Some? I wanna acknowledge first of all that in Catholic circles the means of grace is something that we don't agree with at all. In fact, it's heretical. Um, And they would see that you have to come to church to maintain your salvation and or to gain your salvation. And there is a sense in which their works are believed to come before salvation. This is rank heresy and we are not for it. Um, But this same terminology of means of grace is often used in reformed Protestant circles. And in reformed Protestant circles, it has a completely different meaning. Um, what they point out is that we see these things that seem to build faith, Uh, that prayer and fellowship and teaching of the word, uh, that worshiping together, communing together seems to do something that enriches a person's faith. And so I'm going to read this brief quote from Legionnaire Ministries. It says, in his grace and in his wisdom, God has provided ways by which we can regularly have our faith in his promises fortified. That's key language. Historically, We have referred to these ways of strengthening our faith as the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, the preaching of the word, and the sacraments are not elaborate or fancy methods of giving us what we need to confirm our trust in Christ. To an outsider, to an outside observer, they do not seem special at all. After all, they make use of rather common things such as human speech, bread, wine, and water. But by faith and the work of the Spirit, these common elements are used to do an uncommon work. The confirmation of our trust in Jesus and the strengthening of our wills to flee from sin and to rest in Christ alone. When you hear in reformed circles this language of means of grace, they're not saying these are things that allow you to be saved. It's that these are things that remind you of the promises of God and seem to do something to strengthen and fortify your faith. And so certainly there is a sense in which when I wake up in the morning and I pour myself coffee and I sit down in my rocking chair and I open up the word of God, there, that is, we could argue that's a means of grace because when I'm done with that time, my faith is enriched and I'm, I'm strengthened, I'm refreshed, right? But also, and then I pray a little bit, hopefully a lot, and then when I'm done, like I'm refreshed even more. And there is something that certainly, individually, we could call that a means of grace and that God is building my faith in that doesn't affect my salvation one way or the other, but it builds my, it strengthens my joy in the Lord. There is also a sense in which when I come together on Sunday morning, I am refreshed in a way that I am not refreshed all week. There is something about gathering with the fellow believers, worshiping God together. Someone proclaims the gospel to us. Someone else teaches. We sing, we pray, we worship We give, and there's something that happens. I leave here consistently refreshed in a way that just doesn't happen when I'm alone. And we would say that this is part of that means of grace that God is building my faith in it. And it is why I give such a hard time when someone neglects the assembly. I'll say, you can't do this for long, and your spirits stay refreshed. You will have negative effects from this if you do not get here. Um, I want to just draw attention very briefly. Uh, You'll hear me mention catechisms every now and then, Keech's Catechism and Westminster Shorter Catechism, these old Reformed catechisms. I'll just acknowledge Heidelberg Catechism is another pretty doggone good one. Um, And they address this issue of means of grace. In question 65, it says, Since then we are made partakers of Christ and all the benefits by uh, by faith only. Whence does this faith proceed? And the answer is from the Holy Ghost. Who works faith in our hearts by preaching of the gospel and confirms it, notice, confirms it by the use of the sacraments. Question 66. What, is the sac- what are the sacraments? The sacraments are the holy visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end. That by the use thereof, uh, he may more fully declare and seal us the promise of the gospel. That he grants us freely the remission of sin and, the et- uh, and life eternal for the sake of of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Notice, there's a clarification here that's like, this isn't making you any more saved. It's simply confirming and reminding the salvation that you already have. So, that first, so remember, we talked about first principle in all of this is I better get together with the saints so that I can partake in the means of grace and have my faith built. And so that I can do the same in ministering to others It is so critical, brothers and sisters. And in Hebrews, it even says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The idea is, as the day of the Lord comes closer and closer, all the more important it is for us to gather together. So, the rest of these go quickly, by the way. Um, Principle two, worship is to be done in unity. I want to point out in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, but in the following instruction, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Paul is saying, I don't know of any other place in Scripture where this kind of language is used, Paul is saying it's actually worse that you get together because there's so much division. He's, he is actually saying your assembly is actually counterproductive because there is such division in your midst. That's heavy. And, and it strikes me that like we, we better pay attention to that. By God's grace, we've been blessed with a whole lot of unity of late, and I'm praising the Lord for it. But facing facts like we're sinners who have been redeemed, we still have a sin nature, division to some degree will probably pop up and has to be dealt with. And Paul uses such heavy language to say, like, it actually is worse if you're divided when you come together. In that same epistle, in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Similarly, Philippians 2, 2 says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. First Peter 3, 8, similarly, he says, Finally, all of you have... Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and of a humble mind. So notice that the second principle seems to go with the second. By the way, I'm, I'm just pulling scriptural principles. It's not like God lists them in some order. I'm just kind of saying, here's a principle to remember. This second principle is that as we gather together, it must be done in unity. And so there is so much emphasis in Scripture that I better be getting along with my brothers and sisters. This doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements in areas where we think differently, but it does mean I should be fully in agreement on the essentials of the faith and that if there is some interpersonal conflict, that I have dealt with it before we assemble together again. Because the unity of the saints is so critical to the point where Paul says it's counterproductive if you are divided. Everybody, make sense? Cool. Third principle here we see show up in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, I'm going to read verse 26, 33, and 40 just because of time, but you'll recognize there's much more in there. He says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, why do you think Paul's mentioning that? He's, he's affirming. He's like, okay, everybody, you got some, everybody shows up with something to do. Um, Let all things be done for the building up. Why does he need to mention that here? Why does he need to mention that the things need to be done for the building up of the saints? Nature to tear down, down, yeah. Or, Or even to maybe build ourselves up as opposed to the others. And so the idea is everything that I'm doing in the assembly should be done for edifying the saints, and the implication is also, for the, obviously, for the glory of God. And so he's mentioning these things, and he's kind of subtly. He's not saying, well, you shouldn't be doing all this stuff. He's just saying, like, he's clearly questioning the intentions among it. And then he gives, by the way, some very clear instructions for order uh, related to prophets, related to uh, speaking in tongues and interpreters. Um, he's giving this very clear. He's like, you better have order. Verse 33 then he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so notice that he appeals then second to the character of God. The very nature of God is that he is a God of order. He is not a God of confusion. Now, I always like to draw a distinction between confusion and just not understanding yet. There are certain things about God that are, are, we're learning still and we can understand, like, I, I haven't figured this out yet. I'm, I'm not, I don't understand it fully. That's different from confusion. Confusion is when there is a disorder. And I don't know what's going on. And it doesn't make any sense. And, and I'm actually left there kind of feeling kind of fuzzy. And so he's saying, Paul is saying, God is a God of order. And if we are going to worship a God of order, we better do it with order. And if I'm not doing it with order and there is confusion, meaning there are contradictory or confusing things or it's just a big jumbled mess, the subtle implication is that if if God is a God of order, this can't be coming from Him, and so it's coming from some other source. That that's concerning. Um, more on that in a second. And then He gives some more instructions on order. And then in verse forty, He says, "But all things should be done decently and in order." So God is a God of peace. He's a God of clarity. He's God of order. I better be following along in that. And so I just need to make a little side note related to this and address four different practices of worship uh, that are common in various churches. The one, and I'm going to put these in order from, I would argue, from worst to best. The one would be called syncretism. Anybody heard the term syncretism before? Syncretism is when pagan or non-Christian practices of worship uh, or religious practices such as that, are weaved into Christian worship, um, syncretism, in that you have more than one happening. Uh, an example of this, we got a picture of, like, the Pope, who is a pagan leader, and he's with some other pagan leaders. And the idea is that they're trying to weave together these practices of paganism into Christianity. That is wicked. Don't ever do that. Um, I would say we see this in things like Santeria. Have you guys have ever heard of Santeria? No, it's like it tends to come up in uh, Central American countries where there's this occultic practices of witchcraft that they've weaved into certain Catholicism. Actually, in a lot of Catholic regions, you will see that the Catholic Church had a way of trying to kind of syncretize and like, well, you're already doing this, so let's just weave that in with what we're doing. And so you can kind of just keep doing what you're doing, but also you're with us. Um, It's sinful and it's bad. Unfortunately, what we're seeing right now is some churches are implementing this, even ones that would call themselves evangelical, um, you have churches that have engaged in some form of divination, I mean, that's wicked. Like, God's commanded to not do this pagan act, and you're trying to weave it into worship. If you're using tarot cards and calling it Christian, you're, you're actually en- engaging in paganism, and this is arguably more offensive. Um, I would also, this makes people mad every now and then, but the use of the enneagram. The Enneagram is not a good thing. It comes out of New Age paganism. Uh, it is not merely a personality test. It is rooted in some really bad practices and you might not know all those things, but when you bring that into worship and when a pastor does a sermon series on the Enneagram and he abandons the text of scripture, that's syncretism and it's wicked. Little side note, I'm not like bringing a hard hammer if you uh, have used the Enneagram, but I would caution you. Um, there's, there's not good things related to it, and it certainly shouldn't be brought into worship when God has given us commands on how he's to be worshipped. So syncretism would kind of be like the worst. And then we would also have what would be called unprincipled worship. And this would be worship that nobody's really thought it through. You know, they're, they're... you know, we, we hem-haw and we talk around and we never get to the teaching of the word. Uh, or, or maybe it's just that we just let anything happen and somebody has a weird prophecy and nobody comes in to say, wait a minute, that's not biblical. Um, and, you know, we, unprincipled would just be kind of a free-for-all. And maybe they're not weaving in any kind of paganism, but it's like there's not principle in here. It's confusing. It's lacking peace and it's not honoring the God of order who has commanded us how to worship. A third form, a third principle of worship is what is called the normative principle. And it was one of two that came out of the time of the Reformation. The normative principle essentially says, if it is not specifically condemned in scripture, it can be part of worship. And so you see this often, and this is, you'll see normative principle is where I'm like, okay, this can be okay. It might not be what I recommend, but it can be okay. The normative principle, you'll see in a lot of Lutheran churches where they'll say, yeah, we know that this is not in the Bible, this thing that we're doing. It was part of the Catholic Church, but it's tradition, it's not anti-Bible. The Bible doesn't say not to do this, so we make this part of our worship practices. Um, And it was actually, Martin Luther kind of pushed that. He pushed the normative principle. And I would actually argue, you see this in a lot of evangelical churches, where we say, you know, we've got this light show, we've got this smoke machine, and it's cool, and we like this. Normative principle, man, God's not against this, so it must be okay. And I would say, I'm cautious about it. I, I wouldn't call it heresy, but I'd be like, Man, we should be careful. Um, but normative principle, we got good faithful brothers and sisters who apply the normative principle, even if they don't know that's what they apply. Have you guys heard of this? Yes? No? All right. Then we have what is called the regulative principle. I know I'm going into a lot of church history stuff, but this is important. And the regulative principle uh, was the strongest in the Reformation, and the idea was Let's not do anything that God has not commanded in worship. And so they begin with, what has God commanded? And anything else, it might be bad, it might be good, but we'd rather just be really cautious. And a lot of times when people think regulative principle, they think high church. They think of like the Anglican churches that are super ordered. Anglican churches generally are probably closer to normative principle. High church does not mean regulative principle. It can. Regulative principle is, I don't want to do anything in worship that could in any way compromise someone's convictions. So I wanna keep the worship as simple and clear as possible and as associated with the commands of God as possible. And I would say this is where we lean towards as a church. Now there are degrees of regulative principle to the point where some are like, well, we will only sing psalms and there's no hymns allowed and no contemporary worship allowed because God doesn't specifically say those words in scripture. Some guys do that, and I'm like, okay, praise the Lord, you want to do that? That's okay. I think we have a case for psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But this would be normative principle, and it's where we seek to be as a church. Everybody with me? Cool. Any questions on that, by the way, before we move on? All right. So, fourth principle here. We already addressed this, but I just want to make it very specific. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. uh, The very last part of it says, let all things be done for building up. The purpose of this ministry work on Sunday that we do with one another is that the body of Christ is built up to God's glory. And so as I'm coming together with the saints, if I am engaging in something that is not specifically for the purpose of bringing God glory through blessing the other believers, then I should check myself. If I'm really loving uh, doing solo music because I, I like for everybody to hear my voice, I'm getting into a dangerous area. If I really love the attention of preaching, I could get into a real dangerous area. My intention has to be for the edification of the saints. And a little side note, um, it's really easy when you're preaching to say, I'm gonna do this fun, cool story. I'm gonna tell a little bit about my life. And I'm gonna tell this fun thing and this joke. And then you get this attention and you're like, but I have to do that to get everybody interested. And then once they're interested, then I'll give them some scripture. i just tell you, it's not a good thing to draw attention to self for the sake of teaching the gospel. And I, at times, I might even go the other way, where I'm going to be like, I'm going to make this as milk toast as possible, so that it's just the word. But let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, what we do should be for the building up of one another. If I can't leave here knowing that I have somehow edified the church, even if it's simply an encouraging word to a brother, even if it's praying for a sister, even if it's some small thing, I should think of what am I doing, even in my presence. To build up the church. Fifth principle, uh, we don't have to take too much time on this, but that it is to take communion with consideration. I want to point out that when Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 writes about communion, he draws attention to the fact, and this is the only place I know of this in Scripture, uh, or at least in the New Testament, where people were killed for dishonoring God in worship. So, verse 27 um, of First Corinthians, First Corinthians 11. Um, All the way through verse 33, it says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy matter will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That is a euphemism for death. He is saying that because they took communion flippantly, God has has allowed them to become sick and has allowed them to die. I, I, that's, that's huge. You know, we see in the Old Testament where even when they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they're not doing it in a way honoring to the Lord in accordance with his commands and when it falls off the cart... Somebody in good faith, good intentions, tries to balance it back up, and God strikes him dead because you're not supposed to t- touch the ark. And they weren't obeying God's commands, and so even this guy with good intentions gets struck dead for not honoring God's commands in worship. How much more when it comes to this? So verse 31 it says, but if we, more, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way, by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the Lord, with the world. So then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Um, of course, this is in the context of some people were getting drunk and eating too much and other people went hungry and didn't have anything to drink and that was bad. Um, understanding here, there's another principle. As we're gathering together, I should be conscience, conscious of how I take communion. All right, so as we're finishing up, I want to address various elements of corporate worship that we have already addressed and we see in scripture. One is prayer. We're commanded to pray together. Um, Giving is a command in scripture. Fellowship is commanded. Teaching is commanded. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is commanded. Taking the Lord's Supper is commanded. And baptism, when it's appropriate, is commanded. And then as we say, everything must be done for God's glory and for the building up of believers. Spiritual gifts, in the biblical sense, are being applied to those ends. Pretty simple, there are things that God has said he wants built in to worship. And so when we get together for corporate worship, we try to build these things in as carefully as possible. Fellowship, that is involved in encouraging one another, all the mercy showing and encouragement and prayer is built into that. Not just in the official gathering time, but while we're eating and while we're leaving, fellowship is built in because it's commanded. Second, we open in prayer. Um, And in that process, we're seeking God's face and asking for his blessing on what we're doing. We do catechism because we want to teach the children and the adults, just as Deuteronomy tells us to do, just as we see throughout scripture that I am to make sure that people are learning. We use catechism for that purpose. Uh, We sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs because it's commanded. We engage in corporate prayer. We use adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we do this because it's been commanded that we do those things. Similarly, we teach generally chapter by chapter through scripture. We do that because God has commanded it and that it builds faith in the saints. We proclaim the gospel because, remember Hebrews 10 says, we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. So every time we come together, we proclaim the gospel. We have baptism when somebody comes to Christ, and we give for the sake of God's glory. This is what we do, brothers and sisters. And I recognize this is a really flat, basic way to go through all of these things, but I felt that it was very important for us to understand here is what we do in corporate worship and why is it is so important. It's because God has commanded these things and it is no small thing for us to come together and worship the God of creation. So, as we close, I'm going to read just from Colossians 3:14 through 17. Actually, we'll begin in verse 12. It says, put then, uh, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, Lord, may we live in obedience to this as we gather together. God, we have been blessed with so much joy and fellowship, and um, we recognize we are imperfect people coming together. Uh, But Lord, we ask that we would put on love, that we would admonish one another, we would encourage one another. We would hear the word taught, we would sing, and we would give you glory in everything, that you would build up your church for your glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And Brian, you're on for gospel? Yep. Yeah, go? Yeah, go for it, man.